Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Capehart. May 25th marked the third anniversary of the murder of George Floyd under the knee of Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, a death that was captured on video and sparked nationwide protests that inspired demonstrations around the world. Holding that police officer accountable fell to Minnesota State Attorney General Keith Ellison, who writes about the case, the aftermath, and his ongoing work to confront police brutality in his new book, Break the Wheel, Ending the Cycle of Police Violence. In this conversation, first recorded for Washington Post Live on May 24th, Ellison talks about how the murder of George Floyd fit a horrific pattern in American life, what needs to be done to break it, and how community trust is essential. The most important law enforcement tool is trust in the community. You break that and you've set yourself back and you've made life easier for people who do commit crimes. Private citizens who commit crimes and prey on others, uh, you know, they, they benefit from a poor relationship between police and community. During the Chauvin proceedings, this was interesting for me to find out, you filled several notebooks uh, with jotted down notes, and, and this provided the foundation for Break the Wheel. Was your intention to write a book or to keep your own record for history? Well, it was, I used it in the course of trial prep, right? In the course of trial preparation, you, there's endless numbers of meetings. We have separate meetings on jury selection, what the jury questionnaire is going to look like. We have separate meetings on the medical case. The uh, Have we prepped the witnesses properly? Have we asked them all the questions we need to ask them? And so I'm keeping notes constantly to make sure I don't forget anything. Um, my thought was to just make sure that there was nothing that we didn't think of. We didn't want anything in the trial to be new. We didn't want any surprises. So I kept a lot of notes. I kept a lot of notes and and I referred back to them when I thought that it would be a good idea to try to set to try to make a document that people might be able to refer to uh, when these uh, when this incident when this type of thing happens again. Sadly, it's already happened many times since the death of George Floyd. Well, quite honestly, I mean, you open the book by basically showing. I mean, break the wheel. You show how the wheel is something that preceded. Uh, the, the the murder of George Floyd. You, you as you write about when you got the video into your um, phone in the wee hours of the morning, you recount the previous cases um, like George Floyd that happened in Minneapolis, that happened in Minnesota, in addition to the ones that happened around the country. Right. That's right. Well, I mean, one of the things, Jonathan, that uh, struck me is when I saw that video, I knew where it was because I know my city, and Two blocks north, three blocks north of that very location where George Floyd died, uh, I had represented a young man by the name of uh, um, uh, Miles uh, Lawrence Miles, and Lawrence Miles was shot in the back. He survived. He's an adult now, and 
He still suffers from debilitating injuries. He suffered from that shooting incident. Anyway, Jonathan, you know that we we took that young man's case to trial for civil damages, and we lost. We got zeroed out by the jury. The jury found in favor of the officer. That same officer went on and shot and and uh, a, a fellow officer who was undercover named Dewey No, uh, and Dewey No felt so alienated, isolated, isolated after multiple surgeries that he ultimately claimed is he took he committed suicide uh and so you know that that corner was familiar to me i know that corner and i know the cases and i've been working on this issue since i was a very young adult teenager so when this matter landed in my lap uh three years ago uh, i felt i had i felt i knew what i was i was prepared for and i i knew uh, how to manage this matter Couple things. I mean, before you were the state attorney general, you were a member of Congress. Um, was um, was where G- George Floyd was killed? Was that in your district, your congressional Absolutely. district? Absolutely, right. it was my congressional district. Uh, you know, and you know Minneapolis, so yeah. you know that's that's just the South Side. You know, and in fact, I know that area so well that whenever I get a, uh, a fender bender on my car, a friend of mine named Hamza. Uh, he's really good at fixing my car and making it look like new. It's right on that corner. So this is an area that I know very well. Well, talk about why you're constantly going, getting dents and removed out of your car in, an, <laughs> in another conversation. But you also <laughs> write about the fact you know this area so well and you know the people so well that one of the people on the, on the video um, that shows the murder of George Floyd, you recognize one of the people who was saying, Hey, check his pulse. You know, Donald Williams, when I first saw the video, I didn't recognize it as him because when I knew him, he was a little boy. He was, uh, and he was a wrestler at, you know, in, in the Minneapolis Parks Rec- Park and Recreation System with my two kids, Jeremiah and Elijah. Both of them are adults. Donald's an adult. And I knew, but I knew I recognized him from somewhere, but I just couldn't place him. And as the day wore on and the facts came in, I said, that's Donald Williams. I know that guy. And uh, it was a surprise. It just goes to show that these things are close. You know, the, the tragedy of Donald, of, of, uh, of George Floyd uh, was, was close. Uh, many people knew George Floyd. Uh, in fact, the places he worked, I knew those places well. The Conga, been there many times. A friend of mine owns it. Uh, and she, Maya Santa Maria, she's a, the proprietor. Uh, she really liked George Floyd a lot, hired him. But when she got shut down because of COVID, she had to lay him off. And then he was uh, in difficult uh, economic circumstances, which are related to why he ended up on that corner that day. You know, you write um, uh, in the book in terms of your familiarity with the, with the community. You, write, you wrote, none of the four officers seem to have any awareness about the extent of the damage they inflicted on the community's trust even before Chauvin sank his knee into Floyd's neck. Attorney General, talk more about the importance of trust between law enforcement and the community they are sworn to protect. It's indispensable. I mean, the, if you have a trust relationship with the community, the community would tell you where which houses people are selling dope out of. They will tell you which you know, uh, which businesses that allow a certain amount of mayhem uh, and might even profit from it. They'll tell you the names of things, people who you might be looking for. You might, the officers might only know the people by a nickname. 
But if you know the community, the community will tell you who that person is. Trust is indispensable. And man, we think about technology all the time, you know, uh, even like, uh, you know, listening devices, you know, all kinds of videotape, things like that. But the most important law enforcement tool is trust in the community. You break that and you've set yourself back and you've made life easier for people who do commit crimes. Private citizens who commit crimes and prey on others, uh, you know, they, they benefit from a poor relationship between police and community. And actually, that, that is a, an, an excellent point. You know, you have um, the brother of George Floyd, Philonis Floyd, um, yep. write a forward for your book. And, and he writes, um, he references the case of Tyree Nichols in, right. in Memphis, Tennessee, who was killed by police officers in that specialty, playing, that specialty unit, the Scorpion, Scorpion unit. unit. Scorpion right. unit. And, and Philonis writes, quote, um, these two things, quick disciplinary action and an aggressive prosecution are the only things that are sure to bring police brutality to an end. That was indeed the case when it came to bringing, getting justice for his brother, George Floyd. But I'm just wondering, discipline, quick disciplinary action and aggressive prosecution do not automatically guarantee a conviction, um, as we saw in the Chauvin trial, does it? Not necessarily, but you can't control your outcome, but you can control how you manage the problem if you are a public official. And so what I think that uh, Philonis meant there is if, if over time uh, you can find that prosecutor offices, mayors, and police chiefs uh, can be counted on to act swiftly in, in a heinous case of police violence, then you will begin to solve the problem. I mean, we often throw around a lot of solutions and training often comes up, but I'm telling you that unless there is a credible and realistic concern that rule breaking is gonna have consequences, I don't think the training really ever gets a chance to soak in. Right, and you make that point um, in many places in your book. You know, you also write um, in terms of you know what you want other prosecutors to take away, and you write, um, tragically, this is probably going to happen again. You said this in an interview with the Star Tribune. Um, these cases, meaning police-involved cases, these cases are not like your average average criminal case. They're just not. They're very different. So you need some resources to get a grip on that. Talk more. Uh, talk more about that. Well. You know, Jonathan, when you're a prosecutor, you walk into the courtroom, um, the judge is going to tell the jury that the defendant is presumed innocent and can only be found guilty be with proof beyond a reasonable doubt. That is a very important instruction. Why? Because the jurors figure, well, you know, you're here, you're sitting in that chair, you're being judged by us, you must be here for a reason. The, the instruction is to make certain that the state does not have an advantage just based on being the state. Uh, but in a case where you're prosecuting police officers, it's really the other way around. I mean, the bottom line is the, the, the assumptions and the, um, the, the, uh, the doubts get resolved in favor of the police. And, it, and, and you know, that, that's probably a good thing that people trust police or want to. It's a good thing that people assume that the people who are entrusted with their safety are trustworthy. But uh, from a prosecutorial standpoint, I think you walk in 
with the roles being in reverse. You're you're more or less you're they you really do have to prove that case. You you are going to be held uh, to your proofs in every element. That's appropriate, but it's different from the normal flavor, the normal course of events, where uh, if if you're dealing with private individuals, uh, the the judge really does need to make sure that that defendant is going to get their full benefit of their rights to be presumed innocent. Not so in a police case. Uh, in a police case, uh, the officer is presumed to be innocent by that jury, uh, no matter what the color of the jury may be. Right. And, and speaking of the jury, I mean, you went to great lengths um, to prepare for this case, including you and your team conducted mock trials. Um, we did. And what's interesting here is you guys thought that uh, about the possibility of a venue change, that they would move from we, Hennepin County elsewhere. And one of the things you did was you conducted a mock trial with Stearns County residents. One, how does that work? How do you how do you do a mock trial with residents and not have that what you've done get out in, in, in into the public? How does that work? Well, we just kept it tight. You know, we we told everybody on our team that it was very important for us to keep the information internal. Uh, and, um, you know, we had the people who uh, participated as mock jurors sign a release that they signed a document that they, this was going to stay uh, only with them because we were exposing them to uh, what we expected the evidence to be a trial. And, uh, you know, the, they gave us realistic, very, very clear uh, viewpoints. Uh, both, I mean, we, we had them in Stearns County, we had them in Hennepin County. Stearns County, we thought, uh, you know, is a great county full of wonderful people. I love to represent them, but it is a more conservative place. There's no question about that. Uh, Stearns County residents would be the first to tell you that. So we thought that uh, it would be important if the case got moved there, What? how might those jurors view the evidence in this case? And quite honestly, it came back favorably when it comes to second degree manslaughter, but a little bit more of a, a, a tougher sell when it came to the first second degree murder. Uh, and so we knew that we had to have tight themes, but we also knew that no matter where we were in the state of Minnesota, people did not condone what Derek Chauvin did to, to, to George Floyd. Mm -hmm. um, that, that was something that we knew from based on those mock trials, that even in the most conservative part of the state, this, was looked, this, this conduct was frowned upon. One thing you also pointed pointed out is that great you get to present your case uh, to this mock in this mock trial, but you don't know how the defense is going going to act. Right, we don't. But we so we got a great lawyer named Steve Slisher, who actually was one of the trial team members, to play the role of Eric Nelson. And Steve was very tough. Steve came in there guns a blazing. I put it like this: I'm glad he wasn't the defense attorney. Eric Nelson, by the way, did a fine job, but Steve stood in for him at our mock trial and really just put us through our paces. And it helped us because it made us uh, think of every avenue where things could go sideways. And that's why we did that mock trial, because we wanted to have a very tight case and make sure we were putting on the best presentation of the evidence that we could. Mm -hmm. You know, a poignant moment in the trial came during the closing, your co-counsel's closing remarks and uh, Special Assistant Attorney General Jer Jerry Blackwell, and he said, quote, you were told, to the jury, you were told, for example, 
that Mr. Floyd died because his heart was too big. The truth of the matter is that the reason George Floyd is dead is because Mr. Chauvin's heart was too small. Why, why did you urge him to end with those words as opposed to leaving them smack in the middle of his closing right. argument? Mic drop moment. For me, it was a mic, it, it summed up everything, everything. Because, you know, throughout the case, we knew the medical case was going to be tough because George Floyd did have fentanyl and he had uh, meth in his system. They were in minute quantities, even according to the toxicologist, but they were there. And we, he also had had some uh, issues with uh, stenosis and things like that. But none of those things caused George Floyd's death. George Floyd was, had played basketball early, earlier in the day, was walking around healthy, and it was the knee on the neck and the refusal of Chauvin to move, to get up, to stop what he was doing, to check his pulse, to do anything approaching medical intervention like neck compressions or CPR as he was trained to do. Um, and so Jerry's line, which he thought up all on his own, uh, I thought was brilliant and captured it. And I told him, man, that's where you got to end. You don't want that. You don't want to bury that one. That is what's going to what the jury will carry that into their deliberations and it's be impossible for to forget it, to forget it. Well, let's talk about the title break the wheel. Um, and, and it gets to sort of the cycle that, um, that we've been talking about and that, and that right. you write about that cycle of, and you put it perfectly. Um, you, you write that these things are all part of a re repeating cycle of in custody deaths, protest and unrest lawsuits, and study commissions and, and recommendations. And then you, you talk about um, a quote I had not seen before from Bayard Rustin, the civil rights icon who helped organize the, the March on Washington, where he once said, quote, the only weapon we have is our bodies and we need to tuck them in, in places so the wheels don't turn. How does that, it, when he said it, it was in relation to Jim Crow and segregation, what does it mean for you to employ Baird Rustin's words today? Well, it goes to show that Baird Rustin was a enormously influential, brilliant strategist. And he understood that there was a cycle of injustice that was rolling throughout the centuries in our country. And it had to do with Jim Crow segregation, but it also had to do with police brutality. In, in Martin Luther King's um, I Have a Dream speech, in Washington, uh, at the Washington Monument, he talks about police brutality. This is not a new problem. This problem has been going on for a long time. So Baird Rustin, he says, look, we've got to stop this wheel from turning because we have the benefit of learning from Baird Rustin. I say, let's break the wheel of injustice. Let's just crack it and start with some new wheels uh, and, and have a virtuous cycle of justice not the negative one we have been rolling with for so long. Uh, I think it's within our ability to do. Baird Rustin was a very optimistic man. He, he believed things could be better if people got involved. And I take that lesson from him. Um, my mom was a big fan of Baird Rustin. She, she often you know, talked about how he never got the credit he was supposed to get. And uh, she, uh, she's the one who brought that quote to my attention many years ago. Mm -hmm. So then what would a new set of tires, a new set of wheels look like? Good, good point. So here's what we, I think, really must do. First of all, we have to make sure that there is um, 
accountability or a or we have to eliminate impunity. We can't have a situation where some people are living above the law, meaning they can do whatever they want and no one ever holds them accountable, and others are living beneath the law that you know that you can do whatever you want to them and nobody ever says anything. We've got to have an equal standard of justice that starts with prosecuting criminal conduct, whether or not the person is wearing a badge or not, and administrative action where you fire people who are not meeting the work requirements of their job, are not intervening when required to, are not rendering medical assistance when required to. We've got to make it unacceptable to say, you know what, I was just following orders. Um, No, we've got to be able to make it so that young officers, new officers, fresh out of the academy can say to more senior officers, you know, I know what you're telling me, but I know what I was taught in the academy, and I'm going with that because my job and maybe my liberty depend upon it. That's the kind of thing that we need to establish. And that happens because we set up good examples. I'm so, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen in the Tyree Nichols case, but I think that the, uh, the, the prosecutor and the police and the, and the folks in Memphis are off to, they're in the beginning of this thing, but I think they're off to a good start. That's part of it. Then what we've got to do is Congress has to do its part. Congress has not, just has not done its part. I mean, you know, Congress has to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. It's not that complicated. The, the, the proposals are reasonable and fair, and we've simply got to pass it. And we got to pass it hopefully on a bipartisan basis, but it's got to change because we can't have this ongoing cycle of injustice that we never change. And, you know, uh, you know, now that Tim Scott's running for president, I hope he'll make it a priority. Uh, he was one of the people who were supposed to help him get passed when he was in Congress, and that didn't happen. So I hope that it's something that he picks back up. And I would like to just mention, dealing with police misconduct is public safety. Certainly for George Floyd, Tyree Nichols, and uh, Philando Castile, public safety meant safety from officers who were breaking the law. But when officers are allowed to break the law with no consequences, people just, they hang back and they withdraw and they don't cooperate, which means that we're all a little less safe. So that's what it means. The new tires means that we've got to take this matter seriously. It's within our power. I'll also add this, Jonathan, if you'll allow. Yeah. We've got, we can't just leave it all on the criminal justice system. We, we, our society says we're not going to house people. We're going to let them live under intents in the richest country in the world. We're going to ha- let their wages languish. We're not going to give them everybody, give everybody health care. We're not going to have a robust mental health intervention. And then when you have people who are vulnerable out on the streets, we say, you police, y'all go deal with them. We've got to do more to help the police uh, with the other things that are outside of uh, direct public safety. We've got to make sure people are housed, fed, have opportunities for jobs, can go to the doctor when they need to. We've got to have the rest of the society, the rest of the things that we need in order to help supplement police action. And I can tell you, you know, people all over the country are, are, are working with different things. I mean, there's folks who are having mental health professionals go out with police, or sometimes they go out on their own when they get a call that there is a mental health crisis going on. And, uh, you know, so people in local communities are stepping up, trying new things. We need the federal government to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. I got to get you on a couple of things, uh, Attorney General, before we, we run out of time. One, you mentioned the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, and you mentioned Senator Tim Scott, who is 
announced that he's running for president. And you and I yep. both know one of the reasons why negotiations bogged down was because of this very thing, that he was eyeballing a run for the White House and there were things in that bill that he just couldn't get to yes on, particularly ending qualified immunity. How imperative is it um, that the end of qualified immunity be a part of any federal legislation? I said then, and I'll say now, pass the best bill you can, even if it doesn't include things that are necessary and important, like ending qualified immunity. But there's no good case for qualified immunity. I mean, for folks who may not know what qualified immunity is, it's judge-made law, no legislature ever passed this, that says that you've got to have a case almost identical in order to put the public servant on notice that this is prohibited conduct. Well, you can pass laws that say you can't do it. You can pass uh, administrative rules that don't do it. You can, I mean, there's, the, the qualified immunity is just a way uh, to immunize public officials who don't live up to the requirements of their job. I mean, we're not, we're talking about situations when public officials like police or others or others may, may break administrative rules, violate statutes, do the wrong thing, and yet because there's not a precedent directly on point, they escape, in, they escape discovery, they don't have to answer any legal uh, demands of information, they just can get a case dismissed like that. I think it's a bad doctrine, it was a bad idea when it started, still a bad idea, and it undermines the authority of local officials to make the rules that, that public officials have to live by. So. I think it's a bad doctrine. I think the people who want to get rid of it are right. I also would not say that we should not pass the bill simply because we can't get that. Well, I'm going to forego that other last question that I have and ask, ask the, this, this one to let you go. I mean, you share a great deal of personal information in just the first few pages of your book from your, your beloved mother dying a couple of months before George Floyd's murder to the visceral reaction you had watching the, the, the video. Aside from being attorney general, you're also a husband and a father. Um, your, your children are grown. One of them is a member of the Minneapolis City Council as a result yes, of his is. own interaction with, um, with Minneapolis police. What do you hope they um, and your grandchildren will take away when they sit down with this book and are old enough to understand? What do you hope they take away from the book? I hope that they will take away the same lesson I take away from my mother and my grandfather, that there, you have a duty to serve. You have a responsibility to make society better. If there's something you can do to advance human uh, welfare and benefit, you have to do it. And in this book, it, I thought that by documenting my experiences, it might help somebody else who is confronted with the same problem in the future. I expect my uh, descendants to do the same thing, to stand up, do what's right, even if it might cost you. Keith Ellison, 30th Attorney General of the great state of Minnesota, thank you very much for coming back to Capehart on Washington Post Live. Anytime, thank you. Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's edited by Nick Roberts. We'll have new episodes for you every Thursday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.